Hi everyone, uh, one of the most popular Bible verses that's quoted in sermons about parenting is Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old he will not depart from it. It's such a lovely truth and it makes a lovely fridge magnet, uh, but it's not incredibly helpful when deciding what age I should give my kid a cell phone and how much time should my kid spend with the little boy next door who, who works new curse words into every conversation. Uh, verses like this have, have enough promise to remind us that Raising children is not in vain. Every conversation is worth it. Every little correction or encouragement will have an impact. Every exposure to God's heart and God's word will have a lasting influence, even if it's not evident right away. And I think one of the most helpful parts of a passage like this is the usage of this word train, train a child. Like we talk a lot about raising children, but training them seems like a different thing. But it is what we're doing, whether we like it or not. We're training them by what we do and don't do, by what we say and don't say. Uh, um, another famous passage on parenting is over in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. This is the origin of the great commandment, or what the Jewish, Jewish faith calls the Shema. It's a prayer that serves as the centerpiece of morning and evening Jewish prayers. It talks of God's singularity and his kingship. Uh, Jesus repeats it as the summary of the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But now look at the parenting directive. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as uh, frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, what is all of that? It's, it's called training. All of those environments mentioned means that your faith and God's faithfulness is just a normal part of your conversations and just your everyday life. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the media invasion into our homes and how our kids are exposed to voices constantly through their devices. Social media is saying, this is what you should believe. YouTube channels are saying, this is who you should be like. Instagram stories are saying, this is what you should look like. News feeds are declaring, this is how you should behave in a society. But here's the truth. Our children are being trained every day, every minute of every day. Their heads are being filled with ideas, some really good ideas and some really bad ideas. They're being influenced and directed and taught and coerced. They are being trained. And the question is, who is training them? And my challenge to parents today is, will it be you? Will you train your child or will someone else? Will you impart the basic attitudes toward life and the philosophy of life, or will someone else? Will you show them how to make great decisions and how to use wisdom and how to have courage to do good and what is right from wrong? Today, most of the training of our children is not being done by parents. It's not being done by the church, not by the school, but by their screens. And it's time for parents to reclaim the role of the primary trainer of our children. The, the family is not just this biological mechanism that passes along DNA so that the gene pool can keep moving forward. It is a divinely ordained idea from the mind of God himself to pass along the knowledge of God from generation to generation. Faith is not passed through institutions or empires. It's not passed through governments or even churches, but through families by parents who have accepted the challenge to train, to diligently teach them the words and the ways and the works of God. Family is the major vehicle through which God extends faith to the next generation.
So we are in week four of our series, Building Thriving Families. And today we're talking about parenting. And I've chosen a text today that I've preached from before. Some of you will recognize these ideas. Most of you won't. (laughs) But the reason I love this text is because it's not written about parenting per se. Like one of the challenges of doing a series on family like we're doing is that there are so many situations represented in our congregation. So so we talk about parenting, but a whole big chunk of you aren't parents. And we talk about singleness and a whole bunch of you aren't single. We talk about marriage and many of you aren't married. But in our text today, over in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12, you can find your way there, Paul is speaking about these people at a church in Thessalonica like they were his children, but they weren't his actual children. It's it's not a parenting text, but it has incredible parenting principles and metaphors all the way through it. And so the reason I like that is because if you're listening today, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, this text is going to apply to you because Paul wrote it to people who weren't his actual kids. And so you listening, like we have a bunch of adoptive aunts and uncles today who are listening, who are single some big brothers and big sisters who are not related at all, some widows or widowers, some grandparents whose official parenting days have come and gone, but they they still have influence. So this passage is going to apply to those without children, but but it's also people with children can learn so much about investing in the next generation, again, with or without your own kids. And that's something that we're all called to do. So here's my big idea. God has called us to leave a legacy of faith with the next generation. Paul is going to speak from the perspective of a mother and then a brother and then a father. Now, in terms of background, Paul's time with this church in Thessalonica was so powerful, but it was also brief. You can read about how he started this church over in the first nine verses of Acts chapter 17. Paul was only able to stay in town for three Sabbath days. In other words, total time there was three weeks. The people of the city found out he was there. They formed a mob set on removing the apostles and this upstart movement called Christianity from their region. And so they went to Paul's temporary headquarters, which was the house of Jason. They dragged him out, or the Jason out. And there was this accusation from Acts 17, 6. And, and as I read it, if only more of us could be accused of this. It says this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, uh, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so Paul and his companions skipped town, but in those three weeks that they were there, they left an incredible legacy. Parents, Paul did it in three weeks. Certainly we can emulate some of these principles over the course of our 18 years. That's 936 weeks. 936 weeks between the time a child is born until you send them out into the world like Kim and I are about to do with our youngest. And man, it flies by so fast. And so what I want to talk about today is three ways to train the next generation with a legacy of faith. Again, I think there are powerful lessons here for all of us. And so let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 7. And this is Paul describing his short time with the church. He says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Here's what I want you to see. Training method number one is to exhibit affectionate 
care. Did you see that there in verse 7? He says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul is calling himself a nursing mother with her love and affection and gentleness and acceptance, except he's talking to full-grown adults. And it underlines that a key quality in training young people in a legacy of faith is just unwavering acceptance and grace. Like a nursing mother, he says. And many of you know my wife, Kim. She builds houses for a living. She's tough. Man, she's really tough. She has uh, been highly successful in an all-man's world, and it takes a special kind of grit to do that. And yet I've never seen her, my wife, more gentle than when she was nursing our kids. Affectionate care. And think what that little baby is. It's just a little ball of needs, nothing but need. Those babies aren't contributing anything to the family yet. They don't pay rent. They don't leave tips. They're not like, you know, the milk was delicious today, mom. Here's a 20 spot. No, they just take and take and take. They say, I screamed to get the milk. Now I'm going to scream until you help me burp. And I'm going to scream again when I puke it all back out. And it's like, make up your mind, dude. Do you want the milk or not? Parents aren't getting compensated for taking care of this little stranger. In fact, it's costing you a lot. And yet there is this total unequivocal acceptance. The baby has nothing to offer except their needs. And the parents are the ones giving and giving and giving. And there are sleepless nights. Oh, man. And and the juggling schedules and really ugly diapers and stuff coming out of everywhere and ear infections. And the only communication is screaming and crying. It's a totally one-way relationship. But a nursing mother is still just as accepting and loving as if none of the other craziness is even happening. And then the biggest payoff comes. It's when that little grin comes across their face once in a while. A grin. Like after giving and giving and giving, you get a grin. And here's the deal. When that smile comes, you'd think you'd won the lottery. And that puny little stranger now somehow looks cute and precious, even though when other people look at him, they see Winston Churchill. Like, I know... I know you think yours is cute, but can we all just be honest about babies? <laughs> and soon, their, their little arms and hands are going to open up, and they reach out, and it's like you finally understand why arms and hands were created in the first place. In those early years, it's just all about grace. Grace just refers to the, the gratuitous goodness, unmerited favor. It's this generous, self-giving love. And it's actually, I think, one of the main reasons why God created family so that we could all have an up-close look at a lifelong lesson about what his grace feels like from the other side. Gratuitous goodness, even when it's undeserved by that little ball of needs. Now, it's not just babies that have uh, need for this grace, by the way, amen? And that's exactly why Paul's statement is so radical. He's not talking about a nursing mother's undying love and affection and gentleness and acceptance, even when it doesn't make sense, with a baby. He's talking about his affection for grown adults, and he's saying that one of the key qualities that that a person needs to possess if they've been given spiritual influence over another, if they've been entrusted to train that person up, they need unwavering acceptance and grace. And parents, this can be difficult, a difficult quality to maintain, especially as kids get older. Some of them invent whole new ways of crapping on you and puking on you and crying and screaming, but listen, I don't care what age your kids are, they need massive doses of affection and care. And so I ask, is there an element of gentle affection in your home? Is it safe? 
Some of the things that come and they war against an accepting environment, they're things like sarcasm and ridicule and harsh language and coarse joking and cursing and comparisons. Performance-based approval, like if you perform a certain way, then I'll love you, and if not, I'll withhold love from you. Our homes must be filled with affectionate care. I want to look at verse 9 for the second way to train a legacy of faith. Look what he says. For you, remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So, so here's training method number two, is to set a personal faith example. So, so Paul keeps going with this family analogy. And now in verse nine, he's referring to this church as his brothers or siblings. He, he talks about the example that he lived out, including things like, notice, laboring and toiling together and proclaiming the gospel to them and his holy and righteous and blameless conduct lived out in front of them. And he's reminding these folks about how their faith was developed. He now appeals to the example of his own life. He says, we lived up close and personal with you. You got a front row seat to our lives, and here's what you saw. We worked hard, and we taught you about Jesus, and, and we patterned our, our behavior after Jesus so that you could see what a life of faith actually looks like. So not only did we love and accept you like a mother, but we demonstrated to you with our words and with our actions and attitudes what it means to truly follow Jesus every day. See, Paul understood the concept that faith must be caught and not just taught. Parents, do you know how kids learn forgiveness? It's not just through a lecture about forgiveness when a kid at the playground was mean to them. But when they get to see a front row seat to forgiveness being lived out in your life, when they see you working through your own forgiveness of your spouse who didn't show up on time, or the plumber that didn't fix the toilet right, or your sister who you haven't talked to in six months, those are the lessons that stick. It's also how kids learn about generosity and about responsibility and purity and the importance of the Bible and community life and managing priorities. It's not through lectures, it's through watching your life I know some parents who try to shield their kids from, like, for example, arguments or fights that they have between their spouses, between mom and dad. They, they wait until the kids are in bed or wait until the kids are at school to have their fights. I personally think it's good to have some fights in front of your kids, as long as you also let them see the fact that, that you made up. Fight in front of them and then forgive in front of them. It's, it's much more instructive. And by the way, it forces you to fight more fair and not dirty. And so we need to figure out appropriate places to let kids in, to give them a glimpse into decision-making. Let them hear how you're working through a situation at work. Let them watch you balance a checkbook and see how much money you're giving to God's work in the world. Let them participate in thinking through what's the best way to spend this Saturday morning. Let them in. And parents, there's no one in the world who will have a bigger influence on, on the faith of your children than you will. And the greatest gift you can give them is not just going to the right church, not just taking them to the best VBS or involving them in the hottest new Christian summer camp. It's making sure that your own faith is red hot, that you are in a vibrant, growing, stretching, risk-taking relationship with Jesus yourself. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't even know what I'm doing, let alone be an example for my kid. I'm no Bible scholar. I can't even answer their simple questions. Listen, it's not about having all the answers. Part of training is allowing them to walk with you as you find the answers yourself. 
tell them what commentary you looked up in order to find the answer to their question or read them the email you sent to your pastor with a question and how the pastor responded. Remember, you're training them in where to look for truth and how to process it when you find it. Another thing that makes being an example difficult is not just a lack of knowledge, but your own maybe bad habits. You think, well, you know, we go to church, yeah, but half the, half the ride there, I'm losing my temper in the car. And sometimes when I get home from work, when I should be paying attention to them, I'm on my phone instead, and I'm, I'm self-conscious about praying out loud at meals and bedtime. I, I don't even know what to say. You know what I say to you? Perfect. You have the perfect place to start to talk about faith with your kids. Confess your insecurities to them. At the heart of Christianity is the concept of confession and the need for grace. You have the perfect opener. Start with what you're learning through your own failure. Like when it comes to impacting the life of the next generation, the main question you need to ask is not, how do I get my kids off social media? How do I make them listen to me? The main question to ask is, how is my own faith deepening? 2 Timothy 1, 5-7, when Paul was writing to his apprentice Timothy, he says, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and then in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. He knew that faith is not taught as much as it is caught. Parents, your life is on display. And even if you have adult children, they're still watching, they're still learning, maybe now more than ever. In his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, Donald Miller wrote about a time in his life when his marriage was struggling. His 13-year-old daughter was dating a 17-year-old loser. He was looking around trying to blame everyone and anything else for the situation when he finally said, you know, maybe he as a husband and as a dad wasn't living a very compelling spiritual story. Maybe that's why his daughter and even his wife was looking elsewhere to find a better story. He decided that his family would take a trip to a Mexican orphanage to serve and to love people who were in desperate need of love at the time. It started a series of faith adventures for he and his family that rekindled their sense of connection and the purpose of their faith. So I ask, is your own faith red hot? I come back to the definition that we've been using all month, that family is a multi-generational team on mission. And so when you lose any one of those elements, multi-generational influence, or working together as a team, or having a clear defined mission, your family can begin to go on cruise control and things can get really dicey. So make sure that your mission is clear. Okay, what we've said, if you want to train the next generation with a legacy of faith, create an environment where you exhibit affectionate care like a nursing mother, set a personal faith example like an influential older sibling, and the third way is this, training method number three, commit to developing them like a good father. Look at verse 11. He says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so he's gone from mother to brother, and now he says, like a father, notice what he does, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we urged you or we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so the picture has shifted now from a nursing mom to a dad teaching his kid to walk. Imagine mom cradling and loving and rocking that little one and in comes dad and he plops down on the floor and he says, son, I love you, but I wanna teach you the joy of movement. 
And so you know what happens next. Dad props him up against the table and you say, get over here. And they let go and they fall on their butt. And you pick them back up and prop them up again and say, try again. And that happens a hundred times until one time they let go and they, they wobble a little before they f- fall, mainly because of their ginormous head relative to their body. So you stand them back up again and again and again until finally... The wobbling turns into a little step, and that leads to two, and then three, and then four. And soon they're falling into your waiting arms on the other side of the room. Why the persistence? Why the urging? Why the continually standing them back up? Because walking is worth it. And so kids need both voices. I will love you where you are. That's affectionate care. But I'm not content with where you are. That's development. I will embrace you in your current state, but I will urge you toward forward motion. I will show you grace, but I will also show you truth. I will offer you acceptance. I will offer you advice. I will accept you completely as you are. I will call you forward and develop you into what you aren't yet, what you could be. And I don't want us to do, get too caught up into what mom's roles and dad's roles are. That's, it's really not about that. It's just saying that both of these elements, both of these voices must be present in order to leave a legacy of faith. Kids need someone who is committed to their development. The words he uses here are exhortation or admonition and encouragement and charging and urging. These are developmental words. Paul's stating that the goal here is to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. So we're preparing our children, first and foremost, to walk as children of God into this world. Parents, of, uh, parents your, your, your kids need your leadership and they need your guidance like never before. I talked to a couple not long ago who were taking the approach of just letting their kid figure out faith stuff on their own. And they, they said, well, well they, when they grow up, we just want them to, to, to walk whatever path they choose. And I'm thinking, this is a child. You're spending 45 minutes a night teaching them how to use a toothbrush, for heaven's sake. And you're leaving the most important part of their life just up to whatever they choose. That's craziness. Your job is to train them. And to train them not just to brush their teeth and to wash the smelly parts and to eat their vegetables. It's to train them how to love Jesus and his word. You lead them. They don't lead you. Like if your kids are running your house, they are not happy kids. No child wants to be the leader of a home. They weren't made for that. They crave for you to lead them. So in this part of the passage, Paul is talking about leadership and boundaries and guidance and limits and disciplines. Parents, you must have a steely resolve in these areas. If you're a single mom or single dad, you can't always be their friend. They need you to lead. If you're a couple that has set some boundaries, stay on the same team. If you mess it up, reconvene, forgive, and try again, because much more important than which limit you settled on or which consequence you agreed to is that your kids see that you are a united front, that they can't play one against the other. Their spiritual development is at stake, and as soon as they feel like they're calling the shots, you have to relinquish your control as development coordinator. Now, this is not an excuse to be a naggy, micromanagey, helicoptering kind of parent in every move and controlling their every decision. They need to know that you're for them, that their development is your top priority, which means sometimes you let them fail, and sometimes you let them face the consequences of those failures. And as your kids get older, here's the deal. The quality of your relationship with them along the way will determine the weight of your influence when their decisions are becoming much more consequential. Like, who do I date? 
What is my career? Who will I marry? Where will I live? By the time they get there, you want to be positioned as a parent to continue to have influence because they see you as someone who has been for their development every step of the way. Paul says here that we exhorted, look what he says, each one of you, it was very personal, and it needs to be for us too, to, to figure out how God has wired and equipped each person individually, each kid individually. Every kid is different. They have different personalities. Their love for God and, and service to God will look different. They have different spiritual gifts. And so it's your job to help unlock their hearts. And, and by the way, most kids aren't nearly as freaked out about talking through spiritual subjects as you are. Find that place or that activity where they're most likely to open up. Maybe it's taking a walk around the neighborhood. Maybe it's riding in the car with them all buckled in in the back. Maybe it's you know, laying in their bed for 20 minutes each night as they're starting to fall asleep. And sometimes you won't get much from them. But the consistency, the consistency will bring trust and eventually you'll get access to what's going on in their real lives. And there'll be times when you try to use spiritual teachable moments and, and they're not always gonna get it. It happened to me plenty of times and I'm a pastor. My son Chase, when he was little, he fell out of a two-story window of our home. The, the window was open, there was no screen in, the sill was slippery after a rain and he leaned too far out and he fell down two stories. He was just little. There were cinder blocks down there all over the ground where he fell, he missed them all, got up, brushed himself off, walked to the front door of the house, not a scratch on him. We were very fortunate. A couple weeks later, he and I were laying in bed and he started talking about angels and that he remembered an angel from his fall. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. And so I said, Chase, you remember an angel protecting you during your fall? He said, no, dad, I'm talking about the one that shoved me out the window. <laughs> so not only did I feel like a failure as a parent, my child just fell out a two-story window. This was no longer the worst part of the story. As a pastor, I like to think that my kids would be biblically sound. Chase now had a theology that included the idea that the main job of angels was flying around the suburbs looking for little kids to shove out windows. And so this whole development process doesn't always go perfectly, and it has varying results. But the promise for every parent is that if you will train them, children will grow up to lean on that training in ways that you might not even know. So I wanna remind all of you who are listening and who are not parents raising children right now, training the next generation with a legacy of faith is a job for all of us. If you don't have kids, if you're single, maybe you're part of our commons congregation wondering how does this all apply to you, the family, including our church family, is a multi-generational team on mission. Training the next generation in their faith is all of our jobs. Here at Grace, we truly see the church and home as divinely, uh, a divinely ordained partnership. Reggie Joyner, the author of Think Orange, once said, he said, there are two powerful influences on the planet, the church and the home. And they both exist because God initiated them. They both exist because God desires to use them to demonstrate his plan of redemption and restoration. And if they work together, they can make a greater impact than if they work alone. They need each other. Too much is at stake for either one to fail. His whole orange philosophy said that if you imagine the church as yellow and the family as red, we need to think orange. Both institutions working together. But both institutions are in a bit of trouble in our society, aren't they? Some believe that the church has lost its influence, that the family is losing heart. 
And people are giving up on both sides. Some churches are embracing the idea that because the family is disintegrating, the church needs to become a substitute for the family. Others are endorsing the idea that encourages the home to become a substitute for the church. But we truly believe here at Grace that the church and the home are partners. And and we can work off the same page for the sake of our kids and our youth and quite frankly, for the sake of the gospel itself. God has called us, all of us, to leave a legacy of faith with the next generation. The training methods from Paul, from 1 Thessalonians 2, include exhibiting affectionate care, setting a personal faith example, and committing to develop them. Paul later concludes this section with these words, starting in verse 19. He says, what is our hope? What is our joy? When our Lord Jesus returns, what is the crown that we will delight in? Isn't it you? Yes, you are our glory and our joy. Paul is saying to his spiritual children, but it's true of our biological children too. He's saying, when Jesus shows up, these children are gonna be the thing that he's most proud of. When Jesus comes back and says, what do you have to show for your life? Paul says, I'm not gonna go you know, whip out a, a ledger from my backpack and say, well, God, from the age of 31 on, I, I only got drunk seven times, and Jesus, from the day I accepted you, I only used the F word 13 more times. Instead, I just either thought it in my head or replaced it with words like fudge sickles. Aren't you proud of me? And I memorized 32 Bible verses, and I went to six Beth Moore studies, and I listened to 634 John MacArthur sermons, and I played Hillsong music on my way to work each morning. Instead of those trophies, what if your trophy was you look at Jesus and you say, you gave these kids to me and now I'm giving them back to you and I did my very best to instill a legacy of faith in them. I'm bringing them to you now. May it be so, Lord. So for today's next step, can I just ask you a question? And we let the Holy Spirit do his work in you as you ruminate on the answer. Can I ask you to think of one person in your life who you have some spiritual responsibility for? If you're raising kids right now, make, make sure it's one of them, one of your kids. If not, would you think of a, a, like a spiritual son or daughter or a grandchild maybe or somebody from the next generation that you have influence over? I just want you to call their face to your mind. And then will you ask this question? What does that person need most from me right now? Like affectionate care, do they need to feel your love and grace and tenderness? Do they need a personal example? Do you need to give them more access into some area of your life? Or do they need development? Do you, do you need to challenge them or urge them towards something greater? We let the Spirit of God do His work now and bring the right person in, in, into your mind with the right need. And will you then obey whatever He tells you to do this week? I believe is at work right now in our midst. I love you guys.